final piece in this particular section, uh, there, there's a uh, it will be moderated by, uh, and we have he's included in the in the in the biographies, but not in the programme. And that's Peter Murta. Peter is uh, an astonishing and uh, an extraordinary journalist himself. He was former uh, foreign editor of the Irish Times. Uh, I grew up with a seminal book that he wrote along with uh, another journalist colleague, Joe Joyce, called The Boss. Um, and I want to invite Peter Murta onto the Abbey stage. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as Fieke said, my name is Peter Murta, and I'm here to introduce to you uh, Gideon Levy, who writes for Haaretz, which some of you will know is a highly respected paper in Israel with a very uh, independent frame of mind that is not slow to challenge both the government and wider Israeli society. Uh, Gideon writes several times a week in the newspaper a mixture of reportage and opinion pieces that seek to challenge the dominant narrative of events, and most particularly in relation to the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, he might be described, in, in my view, as a thorn in the side of collective conscience. He has written two books, uh, Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under the Israeli Occupation and The Punishment of Gaza and he is festooned with accolades from his colleagues in the media and many others. Um, the latest being only the other day when uh, together with the Palestinian uh, Lutheran pastor in Bethlehem, uh, Matri Raheb, he became this year's recipient of the Olaf Palmer Prize and he will receive that in a few days time in Stockholm. Um, two recent uh, examples of his work in Haaretz sought to draw attention to events in the West Bank and are very typical of his writing. Uh, one concerned uh, an Israeli uh, soldier who killed uh, what Gideon described as a poor student and a wealthy company owner. That was January the 16th and the following day uh, he was back on the same uh, theme uh, looking at the killing by an Israeli policeman of a Palestinian teenage girl armed with the scissors. And that particular piece contains the provocative uh, observation that in 2016, one doesn't have to be Adolf Eichmann to be executed in Israel. It's enough to be a teenage girl with the scissors. Gideon is here today to talk about Israeli society and the endless occupation. Will you please welcome him? Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for inviting me to this really inspiring symposium. It's very hard to fit to the atmosphere of writers and authors and artists with my daily miserable reality that I try to describe in my columns. Let me say a word about myself. I was born in Tel Aviv. My parents both were refugees from Europe. 
I was what one could consider a good boy Tel Aviv, a good boy Israel. I was a typical product of the Israeli education system, of the Israeli media. I believe that we, the Israeli Jews, are always right, the Arabs are always wrong. All the Arabs want only one thing, and this is to throw us to the ocean. That we are the David and they are the Goliath. That we are the ultimate one and only victim in history, which enable us so many rights. And above all, that we are the chosen people. And as a chosen people, again, we have those special rights that other peoples don't possess. I served in the Israeli army, in the army radio station. I did even something worse than this. I worked for four years with Shimon Peres as his aide. But it was only in the late 80s when I joined Haaretz and I started to travel as a journalist to the occupied territories when I gradually realized how wrong I was, how brainwashed I was, and even how stupid I was. And it was a gradual process of going there back and forth, back and forth, and realizing two facts. One is that the biggest drama of Israel is taking place in its dark backyard. And the second is that there is hardly anyone to tell the story of this drama for the Israeli readership and audiences. And it was only then in the late 80s when I decided to took upon myself this kind of mission, professional mission, to try to tell the Israelis a story which not only they are not told, but they don't always want to know. Because one should know that today the Israeli society, much more than before, is a society in denial, like I don't know any other society, a brainwashed society in terms that, and in levels that we don't know any other example in the West, at least. A society which almost all of it, I remember still when the jokes were that two Israelis share three views. Today, three Israelis hardly share one view. And this is always the view which is being spread by the media, by the government, by the Israeli propaganda, namely that we are the victims. You know that the Israeli occupation is maybe not the longest in history, even though it's long enough. It's even not maybe the most brutal one, even though it is brutal enough. But I don't recall one occupation in history in which the occupier present himself as the victim. Not only the victim, but the one and only victim. And this set of beliefs enable the Israeli society which is quite a normal society, enable the Israeli society to live in such peace with so little doubts and question marks and discussions. When in its backyard all those crimes are taking place, we heard a little bit about those crimes this morning, and there are so many others, in a criminal reality, in a reality of an occupation, a brutal occupation, a tyranny, one of the most cruel tyrannies on earth today, and I'm responsible to what I say, one of the most brutal tyrannies on earth. And in a distance of half an hour drive, people are having their own life with no doubts, with no question marks, 
being deeply convinced that Israel is a just place, that the IDF, the Israeli army, is the most moral army in the world, try to tell Israelis that maybe the IDF is the second moral army in the world. Let's say the army of Luxembourg is the most moral army if Luxembourg possesses army. And the Israeli army would be the second moral army in the world. Israelis will be deeply offended. How can you dare? This deep conviction of most of the Israelis really attracted me for so many years, because for so many years when I documented on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, all the crimes, all the killings, all the shootings, all the house demolitions, and things repeat themselves after 30 years, but just getting worse and worse. How can it be that the society lives with such a conviction and such self-content? How come that Israelis are so happy about themselves and proud about themselves? They are not monsters. Some of you met Israelis. They're not monsters. I mean, in any earthquake or, or catastrophe in the world, the Israelis are first to send rescue missions. Most of the Israelis will help an old lady to cross the road many times, even if she doesn't want to cross the road. <laughs> People with values. How come they live in peace with this reality? And throughout the years, I found few explanations. There is not one explanation. It's a whole set of beliefs which enable us Israelis to be so happy about ourselves. I'll be very brief because we have very little time. This set of beliefs contains the deep-rooted belief that we are the chosen people. And this includes Israeli, secular Israelis and religious Israelis. We know better. We are the chosen people. And if we are the chosen people, international law applies to every place, but we are a special case. International law is something highly respected, but Israel is a special case. You hear it again and again, we are the chosen people. The second set of beliefs is we are the victims, the biggest victims in history, maybe the only victims in history. As the late Golda Meir once phrased it, the Israeli prime minister then, she said that after the Holocaust, the Jews have the right to do whatever they want. This is deeply rooted in Israeli beliefs. And the third set of beliefs is obviously the dehumanization, the dehumanization of the Palestinians, which is a major tool to continue this brutality and to live in peace with it. Because if the Palestinians are not exactly equal human beings like us, then there is no problem really of uh, human rights and equality and things like this. And I think if you will scratch under the skin of almost any Israeli, you will find the deeply rooted belief that the Palestinians, and I'm very careful in what I say, they are, they are not exactly like us. They are something else. They were born to kill. They are animals when they go to, to suicide uh, bomb, bombing and when they take their knives and scissors and try to kill Jews, it's always about killing Jews, not killing the occupiers, killing Jews, which brings us back to the victimization, obviously. But they were born to kill. And any attempt 
to try to understand why does a girl of 15 or 16 or a boy of 15 or 16 wake up in the morning, take scissors or a knife and go to a total suicidal action trying to stab an Israeli. In most cases, it's a failure. In almost all the cases, you will be shot dead. What brings young people to do so? Even the question is not legitimate in the Israeli discourse because by asking it, you are justifying terror. So this set of beliefs, together with a, with a wall, with an iron wall that Israelis build themselves against the world, because as you know, the world is against Israel. As you know, the entire world is anti-Semitic. As you know, whatever Israel is doing, the world is against it. So you build yourself a whole false reality in which you are the victim, you are the chosen, you are the right one, and the other is not exactly a human being like you, and the world is carrying those old crimes of anti-Semitism, and you have, in a nutshell, obviously, because I am jumping from issue to issue, but you get a whole set of beliefs in which we are doing right. And all those who don't see it are against us, want to kill us, are our enemies, want to exterminate us. This vicious circle is very hard to break because there are so many agencies in Israeli public opinion and Israeli society which deliver this message. Above all, obviously, the media, which is the biggest collaborator with the occupation in Israel, a free media, commercial media, with very little ideology. But they know the secret. We want to please our readers and our viewers. So they will do anything possible to deliver this message again and again, including the dehumanization of the Palestinians on a daily basis. I remember once a member of parliament, an Israeli Arab member of parliament, was interviewed on TV. And the interviewer asked her, Dr. Tibi, are you a doctor or are you a Palestinian? And it was half a joke, but it was a very, very realistic joke. The media is totally dehumanizing and demonizing the Palestinians. The media is serving as a, as a propaganda agency in many, many cases, in most of the cases, most of the media, obviously and the government, and the army, and the readers, and the writers, and the editors, and the publishers, and the politicians, and the generals. It's a almost wall-to-wall -wall coalition of people who want to live in denial, of people who don't want to confront reality, because they don't really have an answer. And therefore, to break this wall-to-wall -wall coalition is almost impossible. My newspaper is trying to do so, but quite unsuccessfully, because you can see where things are going. Israel is going just to the opposite direction. Ray Dolphin asked in his lecture if Gaza will be a livable place in 2020. I could ask if Israel will be a livable place in 2020. Not that Israel will not exist, for sure it will exist. It's by far strong enough to exist many more years. But will it be a place that we will really want to live in? And if you look backwards in the recent months, you see the tendency, and the tendency is a very, very clear tendency, and a very, very dangerous tendency, a tendency of 
legisl anti-democratic legislations on a daily basis, a tendency of witch hunting, a tendency of first signs of fascism. I don't like to use this word too much, but when leftist NGOs are being chased like they are in those days in Israel, you understand very well the tendency. Now, fascism and signs of fascism are in many countries in Europe today. Racism is in many countries. But what is lacking in Israel is there's no one to stop it. No one to stop it. Not the media, not the civil society which is being weakened again and again, not the parliament, obviously, not the legal system, which is also neutralized more and more and find itself weaker and weaker. There's no one to stop it. So when you look at the overall picture, you don't see much source of hope how to make a change in such a society in this kind of conditions, in such an atmosphere. You know, in the last war in Gaza in summer 2014, it was the first time in the history of Israel that people were scared physically to go to demonstrate against the war. It was never before in Israel that people were scared physically. Not to speak about this, that I needed a bodyguard, but let's put me aside. Those signs leave very little hope for a change from within the Israeli society. And therefore, the only hope for people like me, I must be honest with you, is only from the outside. And you know, the right-wingers in Israel say, this is not democratic. Israelis should decide by themselves about their fate and future. This is very right. But Israelis cannot continue to decide the future and the fate of another people living under their brutal occupation for so many years. And this has nothing to do with democracy because the whole democratic game in Israel is about the Jews and in a way the Israeli Arab citizens, but the Palestinians are obviously not part of the game, of the political game in Israel. And therefore, for people like me, the only hope is for the outs from the outside. Civil societies, public opinions, and apparently also governments. The road is very long, the way is very long. I know that in Israel, there is a lot of nervosity about all kinds of measures that the EU took and some declarations that the Americans took. By the end of the day, we are still in the stage of lip service, of very little real effective steps. And I think there will be a stage in which the world will have to ask himself, or at least public opinions in the West, is it acceptable? Are we going to continue to finance this? to support this, because the taxpayers in the United States and in a way also in the EU are financing this occupation, are supporting this occupation. Is it acceptable in the 21st century that the people will live under occupation for so many years without any perspectives to put an end to it? Because if you ask me, I don't think that Israel had ever had a real genuine intention to put an end to the occupation, not even for a moment. 
and for sure not now with the current atmosphere and the current government in Israel. So very little hope from inside, some kind of hope from the outside, but the picture obviously is quite depressing. For those of you who believed in the two-state solution, that I was one of them, obviously, it is the most logic solution. Two peoples, let's share the land, two states, freedom for both peoples, it's very nice. The only problem is that, in my view, this is a train that left already the station. And I don't know about the Irish trains, but usually trains don't come back, don't go reverse. And once they left the station, there might be another train coming in, but this train left the station. With 600,000 settlers, who will evacuate them exactly? Mr. Netanyahu, Mr. Herzog? And without evacuating 600,000 settlers, there is no viable Palestinian state. Don't buy all the stories, because almost anyone today who is still sticking to the two-state solution knows the truth and does so only to gain more time to establish the occupation and the settlement project even more and more. You know, when I said before that no Israeli statesman really ever meant to put an end to the occupation, there's a very simple proof of this. You don't need to believe me. You just have to ask one question. Was there one Israeli prime minister who ever stopped the settlement project, put a total end to it? And can it be that Israel is intending to return those territories and at the same time build more settlements? Does it go hand to hand together? So the two-state two solution left the station, so I believe. I will be happy to realize that I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that this is the situation, and then one should ask himself, what is the alternative? We are facing now 48 years of a one-state solution. Israel is a one-state with three regimes, a democratic regime for Jewish citizens, a discriminative regime for its Arab citizens, and an apartheid regime in the occupied territories. Let's not get into the argument when there are two people sharing one piece of land, one people gain all the rights, and the other people don't gain any right. This looks like apartheid, talks like apartheid, it is apartheid. And all the trials of the Israeli propaganda to cover it up can't convince anyone reasonable who knows the picture that this is not an apartheid. But it is an apartheid in the occupied territories. I didn't say that Israel is yet an apartheid state. But if this reality will continue of a one state with an apartheid system in its backyard, then the question will be directed to the world, to public opinions. Do you accept another apartheid state in the 21st century? Are you ready for this? Are you ready to finance it? Do you accept it? And here comes my thought that it's about time to change the discourse. Let's stop talk about the occupation. Let's stop talk about the settlements. This battle is unfortunately lost. And let's talk only about one thing, equal rights. One man, one vote. 
And I would like to see what will be the Israeli answer for this. Why not equal rights? What's the reason? Security? What does this has to do with security? Jewish state? Where have you been all those years? You want a Jewish state, create a Jewish majority and pull out from the occupied territories. You can't have them both. You did anything possible to destroy the two-state solution. So now you have to realize that the Jewish state will not be anymore. And if this is the case, what else can you say about equal rights? Because you were born Jewish and the Palestinians were born Palestinians, that's an excuse which will be acceptable in the 21st century? What is any, what can be any explanation to continue this reality in which people gain rights only according to their ethnic origin? And the other people who live in the same country, we are not talking about immigrants, obviously. We are talking about Palestinians who lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Isn't it time for them to gain some kind of rights? This is a long way to go, I know, and the one-state solution is a very problematic solution in the present atmosphere when so much hatred and so many fears are around. I know that people would like to hear a more optimistic vision for this part of the world, especially in such an inspiring symposium. I'm afraid I cannot deliver more than I can. And still, I would like to say one last sentence. Would we all, maybe to create some more hope, would we all have met in the late 80s? And I would have told you that Soviet Russia is going to, fall, to collapse within months, that apartheid South Africa is going to collapse within months, and the Berlin Wall is going to fall within months. I can assure you that Abbey Theater would have never invited me again. This guy is out of his mind. And all this happened and nobody had foreseen it. Because many times you see a big tree one day, boop, falls, and he looks so strong and so healthy and so big. And then you look at it in the inside, and it is so rotten. I think there are very few phenomena today in the world which are more rotten than the Israeli occupation. Thank you very much. Thank you for that, uh, Gideon. Uh, obviously, uh, you meet with great approval here, and I'm sure uh, uh, many of you would like to uh, ask some questions. Maybe I'll just, just kick off with, with one from, from myself. I mean, gosh, you paint a terribly, terribly bleak uh, picture. Uh, Israeli society in denial. Uh, people have no doubts uh, in capital letters about so much, all of what is going on of what is being done in their name. And at the same time, having painted this picture of a society that's impervious both to your own voice and 
what others around the world are saying. You do say that the only hope, and indeed you said to me last night, without international pressure, there is no hope. So can you marry those two thoughts? What is it that the international community, either at an institutional level, pressure group level, individual level, can do that you think, over time, will change this impervious uh, nature? We have a very good example, a very good precedent, and this was the precedent of South Africa. And without saying that the two cases are identical, they are not. There are many, many differences between South Africa and Israel, many, many. And there are many similarities, by the way, including this feeling that South Africa then and Israel now is the front actor against those Islamic or black Africa or communist or big enemies of the world and here is this only democracy in the Middle East and so forth and so forth. But in South Africa, and I, many of my thoughts changed quite dramatically after two visits to South Africa, it worked there. And you know what it worked. I can tell you one thing which will not work with Israel and was very effective with South Africa. It was the boycott on sport. Because in South Africa, it was very effective. Unfortunately, Israel is doing very badly in sport. So sport boycott wouldn't be my first choice. The Eurovision, perhaps? Eurovision is a good one. <laughs> but then it will be mainly the gay community which will <laughs> suffer. In any case, uh, look. It's about bringing the Israelis to be accountable for the occupation. It's about bringing the Israelis to understand that the world does not accept it. It's, and, and words will not make any difference. Israel learned in the last years that all the condemnations and all the words and declarations and resolutions mm. are worth nothing because Israel can continue. And therefore, it's only about making Israelis feel it making Israelis, asking themselves, does it worth it? Are we really ready to pay this certain price for this unacceptable reality? This will be the only wake-up call for Israeli society. But they're not listening to you in Israel. You Why say would these they? things bravely. Why would they? Why would they listen to me? Life is so good. And why would they bother at all about all those really rubbish things that I'm trying to tell them. Why would they bother about the killings, about the executions, about the house demolishing? In Tel Aviv, you don't feel anything of this. So why bother to go for change, to go for evacuating settlements? Who needs all this headache? And the world, anyhow, who cares about the world? So is it, is it words of condemnation from abroad, matched with boycotts, ostracization, is that? For many years, I was hesitating to support or to call for boycott because I don't boycott Israel. I live in Israel and it's very hard for me to tell others to boycott Israel. But today it's very clear for me that that's the only game in town. That's the only game in town. And anyone who wants any kind of effect, nothing else will work. And this is non-violent. This is for sure legitimate. Israel is using it a lot, by the way, this tool against Hamas, against Iran. Mm. Now I heard that some politicians in Israel want to use the boycott against Sweden. Yeah, can you believe that Israel dares to teach Sweden a lesson in morality? C can you understand this unbelievable phenomena in which Israel is teaching Sweden about morality? This country which absorbs so many 
uh, asylum seekers right now and did so many just things. It's not an ideal place, but mm. still, you know, some kind of respect. But anyhow, that's the only game in town. Some questions. Sir, gentleman down at the front there. Uh, and unfortunately, our paper record here, the Irish Times, uses Mark Weiss, who's a Zionist, uh, to record or to, to report from uh, Israel-Palestine. But my question is this. Uh, th there was a, a shooting in a bus station in Israel, and there was an Eritrean man who was uh, shot by mistake. And it wasn't even that, but he was assaulted nine times after he was shot. He was dying underground and assaulted by people. And I just find it so remarkable and unbelievable that people would do that. And I'm just wondering, my question would be, how could a society get to that stage that someone is dying underground and is assaulted uh, nine times by various people? Thank you. You know, the excuse was they thought he's Palestinian. This was the excuse. And would he be a Palestinian or even the terrorist? Then it would get total legitimacy and even, I guess, those people would have got, gotten awards. Finally, when the mistake, so-called, was found out, those people are brought to justice, by the way, those who did it. But quite minor uh, accusations, but they are brought to justice. This must be said. That's the atmosphere in Israel today, I'm afraid to say, not by all Israelis, obviously not. But this is the atmosphere today. This is the outcome of years of incitement, of years of dehumanizing the Palestinians. It's inevitable that, you know, a young man who was brought up in Israel, who reads the popular newspaper or listens to the popular TV station, I mean, you can't expect from him much more. He was taught to do so. Do incidents like that get a lot of coverage in the media in Israel? I mean, is, is there any excuse of ignorance or not knowing? Do people know these things but choose not to react? This case, like the case in Duma where, if, where a family was burned death, dead by settlers, those were two cases which were quite covered. And, and, and the reaction? And the reaction was quite a shock. But they were described as, you know, unusual exceptions. While they happen so many more times on a daily basis, without hardly men being mentioned. You know, all the last cases, there were almost 150 Palestinians killed in the last three months in all these stabbing attempts, which killed around 25 Israelis. And I don't justify the stabbing by all means not. I don't, I don't justify any uh, uh, violence. But this way of executions, I don't have any other word for it. As, I, as you just mentioned, a, a girl of 15 holds a scissor and you shoot her dead? Well, not only that, in the video that, that we have both watched, she, at the moment of her killing, was posing a threat to no one, as far as I could see. Most of those cases, most of those cases, I can tell you, were not in the moment they were shot dead, 
were not creating a danger and could be stopped by other means, for yes. God's sake. You don't shoot in order to kill immediately. Those cases are hardly covered, and above all, they don't became, they didn't become any kind of argument or, or discussion about them. Yes. It's hardly to raise a voice. You see the Swedish foreign minister said it's executions. Mm -hmm. And they label her now, I think that Mr. Mrs. Uh, uh, Wolfstrom is today something between Adolf Hitler and Adolf Eichmann in Israeli uh, perceptions, yeah? Something in between. The gentleman up there with ha his hand up, yep. Uh, thanks, Jadon. Um, Yasser from Gaza, I know we've met. Um, um, I was just interested in your view on two things quickly. One is, uh, you've talked about the struggle for equal rights now, and I'm wondering if you can also comment on the role of addressing the historical injustice of the Nakba of 1948 in this struggle. Uh, the second point is, I can speak about the future of Gaza from my own personal experience, academic and so on, but I'd like you a little bit as well to talk about the future from of Gaza from your perspective. Thanks. It's about the Nakba. That's a very good example because I don't remember when it was when I heard first the word Nakba, but it was I was far beyond being a teenager. I was in my twenties, maybe when I first heard about it. We were taught that all those ruins around Israel. I mean, those were. Palestinians who ran away, all of them voluntarily, never wanted to get back, or maybe it was an earthquake, or you know, some kind of force majeure. We were never told, and we never asked ourselves, what are those ruins? And Israel also covered up most of the ruins with forests, as you know. Those 420 villages, lost villages from 48. And for sure, there will be a stage in which we will have to get to the roots of the conflict. But I think that the first step must be a political step, and then we will go to all the other steps. My problem, by the way, with 48 is would 48 stop in 48? I would say it was a war, it was inevitable, Israel was hardly, hardly born, Israel was weak, Israel was traumatized by the Holocaust, everything was fine, but 48 never stopped. The policy of 48 never stopped until this very day, and therefore we have to deal with it. But, you know, we have such a long way to go. Today, it's almost illegal to mention the word Nakba in Israel. With the new legislations, it will be very hard to even discuss it. As for the future of Gaza, I think you know more than me, Israel would love Gaza to fade out. In all the discussions, if there are discussions at all, Gaza is hardly mentioned. I mean, the only way, and that's really one of the most terrible phenomena of the last years, the only way of Gaza to remind its existence is by launching missiles toward Israel. When Gaza does not launch missiles, nobody talks about Gaza, not the international community, not Israel, not the American, not the UN, nothing. Only when they launch missiles, they remind their existence. This is a horrible message, That's because even if it is mentioned, we saw how little the international community is doing about Gaza. When there was uh, Operation Cast Lead, I was sure that Israel will never dare to go for another br brutal attack like this. And two years later, even worse, and the world accepted it. 
I think that part of the Israelis would like to see Gaza pushed into Egypt. In any case, the dream is that Gaza will fade out, and preferably together with the West Bank, obviously. Somewhere in the sky. I'm conscious we're on a, we're on a tight schedule, and I know there are other people who, who would like to ask questions. There's a gentleman who's, whose hair, I think, is as white as my own in the center, and we'll take him and perhaps one other, uh, maybe this lady here, and, and try, try and take the two questions together and maybe uh, conclude. I think you're going to be around for a little while. I will be around, but you assume that I'm going to remember two questions. <laughs> this is... The gentleman and Mr. then Levi, the lady. I am honored, I feel very honored to sit at the same space as a man of your honor and integrity and bravery. I think I'm delighted that you got such a wonderful applause here. Uh, you said that you were brainwashed in your faith as young and you grew up a very good Jewish boy. Well, I can say here in Ireland, a lot of us were brought up in a faith and we were very good, on my own part, a very good Catholic boy. It's only as I have grown up and grown older and so on that I realize what a toxic thing religion is. And I have reached a stage where I wonder if you would agree with me at all that religion is a scourge on the world. It is surely be to God the most toxic thing that has caused most wars in the world today. Thank you, hang on, hang on a second now, the lady. This question I will remember. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Deirdre Lane, I'm a founder of Shamrock Spring, a sustainable movement for peace and sustainability on the planet. But my question is Yom Kippur, a day of atonement. How can we accelerate within Israel and the Jewish faith real atonement and sustainable peaceful solutions for our planet and our peoples? I'm not sure I got this one. Uh, Yom Kippur, yes. a day of atonement. How sure. can we meditate on that day and use that day to accelerate peace? Both questions both are related, yes, yeah, yes. both are related. As for religion, uh, I'm obviously secular. I was brought up in a secular home. My father hardly knew the difference between one Jewish holiday to the other. I always had to tell him that you don't eat bread in Pesach and you put costumes in Purim and not the opposite. And one year later, again, he asked me, when is it that we don't eat bread and when do we put costumes? In any case, obviously religion is not doing good to the region and to the world. I totally agree with you. But I want to warn from one thing. Until now, the conflict between Israel and Palestinians, which is not a conflict, but let's put it aside now, is not a religious one. It's a political one. And don't let people mislead you. It's the fundamentalist. It's ISIS. It's... Not yet. It might get there. But right now it is a political dispute which might be solved in political means. And therefore, those who bring in religion want to make it as something which cannot be solved because with religion there are no compromises. I still believe that we are not there yet. And I totally support what you said about religions. No argument. And here we come to Yom Kippur. You know, the Jewish religion uh, is a very flexible religion in the way that you, you will find there everything. Racism and liberalism, democracy and tyranny, pro-violence and anti-violence. You find there feminism and anti-feminism and chauvinism. Uh, 
it depends how you take it. I can tell you that, unfortunately, the Jewish religious establishment in Israel never raised its voice against occupation, against social injustice, against discrimination. They are most, there are some who are really unusual, but most of the Jewish religious establishment is part of the incitement against the Muslims, the Arabs, the Palestinians, is part of the national religious orgy which takes place in Israel and is a very, very, and playing a very destructive role. And the best proof is that most of the settlers, and for sure the hardcore of the settlers, are religious Jews who meditate in Yom Kippurim and think the next day, how can they steal more land from the Palestinians? Gideon, I think it's customary on occasions like this to say we could listen to you for ages. I have no doubt that we could sit here for the next three or four hours and I think be completely engaged by what you're saying. Can I just say, from my point of view, it was an absolute pleasure and an honour to meet you and to listen to you. And I think uh, I speak for everybody here when I say that. So thank you very much. And I also want to pay particular tribute to Peter Murcher, who uh, kindly moderated uh, that section for us.